All right, here we go. We are in um, the book of Mark, believe it or not. And uh, we have come to the place of the trial of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at, we're going to be starting here with verse 43. Uh, after the arrest, Jesus has been arrested. Uh, his, his hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so someone read for us, starting at verse 43. Go ahead and read through uh, 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now... He who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Amen. All right, there it is. Thank you. So let's talk about this. We start with Judas. Judas shows up, one of the 12. He shows up with all of his friends. Um, how is this group of people that come to arrest Jesus described? Crowd armed. Okay. They're, a, they're an armed crowd, okay? Uh, they have swords and they have clubs. Um, this doesn't sound like an official arresting delegation. Uh, you know, we would expect soldiers. We would expect FBI agents. We would expect a lot of different things. We don't expect people to show up in the middle of the night, unannounced, with clubs. Um, this is a group of ruffians uh, that have been rounded up by the chief priests for a show of force to do an illegal arrest. This is an illegal arrest, okay? And Jesus will point that out. I was in the temple. If you had grounds to arrest me, very easily you could have arrested me at any point during the week. I've been very open and very public. I've been on your turf every day. And that's the point. Why is night important in this? Huh? Cover their tracks. Cover their tracks. Why don't they want anybody to know? What's their fear? Okay, that the crowd would come to Jesus' defense. Remember, they're afraid of the Galileans. Okay, maybe some of the populace, 
of the city, but particularly the Galileans who are camped out there on the side of the Mount of Olives, right? So they wait till they're all asleep and they come to arrest Jesus in the hopes that um, there's enough force, there's enough surprise, there's enough darkness that they can get Jesus without an incident. And it seems to work. Um, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. What do you think of that? Well, he has to have a clear sign of who Jesus is in this group of people in the, in the, in the, in the torchlight, right? So that they arrest the right one. They don't want to arrest all the disciples. It's pretty clear that Judas doesn't want the other disciples to get arrested along with Jesus or else they would have just arrested the whole group, right? Yeah. Including him. He, they just want to pick out Jesus. And so he, he creates this sign, this very obvious sign, the one that I kiss is the guy that you need to focus on. Everybody else leave alone, right? And so um, the kiss is, uh, it's interesting because it's, it's such an intimate uh, expression of love, right, and devotion and I was thinking, well, what was the last intimate expression of love and devotion? And it was the anointing of this woman, right, in Bethany. And uh, she poured this expensive perfume out on Jesus' head. Um, and, uh, and it was Judas who was indignant about that. And now his expression of love is a sign of betrayal. So you just see this contrast between the two, is this, which is very uh, interesting. Is this kiss the Middle Eastern type greeting kiss? Just as a kiss. Kiss. I mean, we can imagine that's what it is. Like I mean, it's, it's... Judas would walk up and today would shake hands or yeah, something. Yeah, it's... That's probably what it is. And so then one of those standing drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Okay, thinking swordsmanship <laughs> and um, not very effective. Okay, most probably Peter takes a swipe like this and the guy ducks like this and gets his ear shaved off. Okay, um, other gospels tell us that Jesus heals this man. Um, other gospels tell us that this man is Peter. Why doesn't Mark tell us that this is Peter? Because Peter's still alive, okay? If Mark is as early as we believe it is, and this is another piece of evidence, uh, the fact that certain names are not used um, in these incidents uh, gives us an indication that it's early enough Peter's still alive, and this is still an open case, right? Uh, Peter could be, this could be used as Exhibit A in a trial against Peter that he was a violent man, that he was wanted for other crimes, Okay that he was a violent revolutionary, right? <laughs> Who was a sword slinger. And uh, not a very accurate sword slinger, I might add, but a sword slinger nonetheless. Now, if the, gospel, the other gospels are correct, and Jesus put the year back on, <laughs> wouldn't you think at that point in time, they'd be going like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be arresting this guy. You'd think. Yeah. You'd think that there were, you know, look at some, get your ear put back on. Mob mentality. They're a mob. They're a mob. They came to, they came to 
do something violent and they're going to do it. They don't, don't. Yeah, but that may be an indicator he does have unusual abilities and all the more reason to get him arrested before he gets the crowd even more riled up. So that's true too. Ways of looking at it. Yep. So verse 45, 48, I am leading, am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, <coughs> that you have come to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Uh, so Jesus is very aware that he has to fulfill the scriptures. He could have used this as one, I mean, this was an illegal arrest, and he's about to be taken to an illegal trial. Everything about this is illegal. But Jesus knows that he is on uh, a track to fulfill scripture, right? And so Jesus is orchestrating this. He's keeping the actions of the night in line with scripture, as is obviously the Lord. Um, I think that what happens in the, in the garden this night is really important uh, as a precedent for Christianity. Jesus could have defended himself. He had every right to defend himself. One of his disciples attempts to defend Jesus with a sword by violence. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Jesus does not allow his disciples to defend him. And he takes a completely nonviolent approach. And I think he sets a precedent for Christianity here that Christianity will not use violence to expand or even to defend itself. And this is true for the early church through for about 200 years. They get this snot kicked out of them. They are beaten. They are persecuted. They are martyred. And they refuse to defend themselves. They refuse to use violence. They continue to follow the example of Jesus. And Rome will fall to Christianity. Rome will become Christian within 200 years because of this. Okay? Um, it's interesting when you look at other religions. Islam, for example. Muhammad uses force to go from Medina to, to Mecca to conquer the city of Mecca and establish his religion of peace in, 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 in Arabia, okay? That is the precedent that he set. And then his followers use force to extend their religion throughout the, the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, and attempt to enter Europe by force, okay? Following the precedent of their leader. So I think Jesus' precedent is very, very important. We see it picked up by Paul, and we see it proliferated through the church in the early years. Well, the other point is, too, Jesus was so revolutionary because he told them to love your enemies. Yes. And no other religion says that. Right. None. Right. So, yeah. same course. Same deal. Yeah. And so, fundamentally... Christianity has this nonviolence at its very core. 
Now, that's changed over the years, and Christianity, of course, has made a lot of mistakes. The Crusades and all these things that people are very quick to point their finger at um, and all the other crazy religious wars we've had. Um, but in reality, that was never Jesus' intention. And so when people come to you and they throw that back in your face and they say, well, the Crusades, are your Christianity just like everyone else, you can go back to this point and you can say, but our founder, Jesus Christ, did not. Right here, this is the evidence that Jesus was nonviolent, okay? And that was the precedent he set for us. Now, did everyone in Christianity follow it? No, all right? Verse 50, probably one of the saddest verses in, the, in this gospel. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Okay, here's our disciples. The disciples are not painted as heroes in this book. You must remember that. Uh, the disciples are very real, real people. And they fled. Uh, none of them stood up. At this point, I think Peter was willing to stand and fight, and maybe the others reluctantly were standing behind him, ready to fight. But when Jesus said no, it kind of popped his balloon, right? And he went, and they all slunk away into the darkness. Now, verse 51 confused though they don't understand what Jesus is doing I don't think they they have a clue no because they really expected him to be the king who would set them free from the Roman rule and yeah. they're wondering when he's going to make his move and right. how and now would be a good time to call down the angels yeah right um, they kept waiting for that to happen I, I think you're right Verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Aren't you glad that verse is there? Because it just gives me such a, such, it gives me such peace. What in the world? Mark is the shortest gospel, right? Why would he add these two little verses of absolutely no consequence because it was him because it was probably mark himself okay uh acts chapter 12 verse 12 somebody look it up while they do that i have come to believe that this was a, a man raised from the dead in another account the, the soldiers <laughs> ask you know are you jesus and he says i am and it, it throws them all back power of God is on display, right? He's using the same term that, that God had used with Moses, and this power, you know, causes an earthquake, and I believe graves were open, and this man, and it says, but only a linen garment, which is typically very open for clothing, right? So that's, that's my personal uh, interpretation. We don't have any information beyond these two little verses, right? And so you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is it here? Now, if your theory is correct, there is no indication of any of that in the text, right? To make us think that this was, I mean, the earthquake, all that may have been included in Matthew or other places, then why wouldn't this little pericope be included there? But it's included in Mark. And so you have to ask the question, 
why would Mark include such a thing? And, and if you look at Acts chapter 12, verse 12, what does it say? When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Okay, so this is the, the, this is the story of Peter's freedom, free, freeing from prison by the angel, right? And Peter goes to the place where the church is meeting. And um, it's a house owned by a woman named Mary, and her son's name is John, also called Mark. Um, this is probably the John Mark who wrote this gospel, okay? So if you reason back, if there's meeting there, and Peter goes to that, it's kind of their established meeting place, could this also be the upper room where they met on Pentecost, right, where the Spirit fell upon them? And if that's where they're meeting on Pentecost, was it the same upper room that had been miraculously prepared for the Passover, um, where Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples. So it's quite possible that just hours before they were in John Mark's house, he was a young man, a young boy, maybe a teenager at the time, and maybe he saw the crowd going out of Jerusalem, you know, heard the ruckus in the street, heard the whispers, we're going to get Jesus of Nazareth, right? Or maybe he followed the disciples out um, when they left that evening and he was, he was sneaking around like teenagers do, right? Slipped out the window, he's in his pajamas, a linen garment, he's sneaking around following to see what's going to happen because it's an exciting time, right? Um, and so at that point, uh, he's, he's sneaking around in the shadows, somebody grabs his clothes and rips them off and, and he runs away naked. Um, (laughs) why would this be included? I kind of think that it's John Mark's little statement of saying, I was there. I was eyewitness to these events that took place. I saw this happen. And he doesn't mention his name, but he leaves that little spot so that when people are reading, when he's doing his readings and book signings and in, in, um, in borders and, and, uh, places like that. Uh, he says, you know, that, that, that was me. That was me. And I saw this happen. So I don't know. That's, that's what I like to believe. Believe what you want. That's all we got. Okay? That's all we got is some guy running around naked. The first streaker. Look at that. Look at that. Okay. So. Um, I lived next door to the first streaker. Oh, really? Oh. In North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a woman even came up and put clothes on this man, and he walked down the street and took them off. Ethel, put your clothes on. All right. Okay, we need to move on. This is being recorded, right? This is being recorded, I just wanted to tell you. Okay, verse 53. All right, I want somebody to read 53 through the end of the chapter. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find it. 
Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave their false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, he, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. While, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those who were standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. All right. So let's talk about this. Um, they take Jesus to the high priest. Well, where's the high priest in the middle of the night? In his house, in his jammies, okay? He's at his house. Again, irregular. You don't hold a trial at night. And you don't hold it in a private residence. You hold it during the day in the temple, in the chamber of the Sanhedrin, okay? All of this is irregular, of course. Um, Peter, where's Peter? Huh? He's hanging around, okay? Peter is following. Okay, you got to give Peter credit, all right? The other guys didn't deny him, but they're not there either, Okay? They abandon Jesus. Peter, at least, is still attempting to follow. He's still attempting to stay close to Jesus. And he goes all the way into the lion's den, right? All the way into the courtyard of the high priest's house. And he's hanging out with the guards, and he's warming himself by the fire, and he's trying to blend in, right? And um, so the Bible tells us that. And then we go to Jesus. Now Jesus is inside. And um, what are the, who's, who's the, who are these people? Who are the, who's doing this? Who do we have? Who are the people that are running this trial? High priest, chief priest, elders, teachers of the law. Right. This is the Sanhedrin. Yep. The chief priest, the elders of the law, and the teachers, uh, the elders and the teachers of the law. 
Okay, so these three guys, these three groups, they are who comprise the Sanhedrin. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the three stooges, okay? These are the guys that run the religious establishment. They're the ones that Mark points the finger at and says these are the guys pre- predominantly responsible. All right? They're trying to put a case together. Now think about it from their perspective. They finally got Jesus, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do with him now that we have him? We have to present a case. We have to put something together, right, that's going to allow us to get to where we want to get, right? Okay? They're looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So that they could put him to death. So they're not interested in understanding. They're not interested in evidence. They've already decided the outcome, right? What they're looking for now is how do we justify what we're, what we're already planning to do? So you can see that that's backwards. That's not, the, that's not justice, right? Nothing just about this. Is this something typically they do? I mean, it's no. Trials? I mean, no, is no, that no, part no. of their feature? Yes, absolutely. They are a court. Okay. Okay? But it is irregular for them to do this in a way that is illegal. Okay? Yeah. It's it's irregular, but they're still looking for justification. I mean, now now they're resorting to following the law where they need witnesses that agree and all that. Right. Why now? Because it's a show, right? At some point, they're going to have to defend what they've done to the populace or... And so they've got to create at least the ruse of justice here. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they're trying to put together. They're trying to line up their stories, right? Their, their list of witnesses. And, and so they're bringing in all these witnesses. They're false witnesses, but none of them agree. And it's a sham. It's the Keystone Cops, okay? Nothing's coming together for these people. You'd think. They've been plotting this for a long time. (laughs) But we've seen their incompetence. And and part of it is, you know, I think a divine confusion. Because, you know, think about this as far as the legitimacy. The Lord wants to demonstrate that Jesus has to end up on the cross. But he doesn't deserve to go there. And so it has to be clear that he doesn't deserve to go to the cross. So the Lord's not going to allow them to put together a case that actually makes sense because that may convince some people that he deserved to go to the cross, right? But Jesus has to end up at the cross, so it can't be so weak, right, that he ends up getting freed because he's got to die this weekend. He's got an appointment with death, right? So there's this balance going on between the two. All right, so... It's interesting, we go back to the temple. I will destroy the temple. Uh, and then three days, put it back together. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And Jesus is silent. He's just sitting back. He's being quiet strategically, right? Because he knows... Anything he says can and will be used against him in a court of law, right? And so he's just sitting back letting them, he's just watching this thing happen. 
Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the guy? Direct question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus does not deny the truth. Um, if he kept his mouth shut, they would have had nothing against him. Their case was not coming together. Jesus sees this and he's got to help him out because he's got a date with the cross, right? And so his response, of course, is a loaded response. First, he says, I am. He doesn't just say I am. He goes on to blasphemy full bore. Right. But first of all, the, the statement I am is a loaded statement, isn't it? Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Moses asks God, um, what is your name? How can I go into these people and tell them that their God's going to set them free? What's the name of their God? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And so when Jesus stood there, I wonder if he said this in Hebrew. Yahweh. I am. I'm sorry, Exodus 3. Thank you. It's my favorite thing to do is criticize Dan. I appreciate that. It is greatly appreciated, John. Um, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So where does Jesus go for this one? Daniel. He goes back to Daniel. Okay, we've already seen this passage mentioned before by Jesus in his um, Olivet Discourse with the disciples. And now he claims to be the Son of Man. Okay, remember this passage is a shadowy passage in the Old Testament where God, called the Ancient of Days, right? Where the Ancient of Days see there's someone who comes riding on the clouds and he is like a son of man and he comes and God turns over him to him authority and power and dominion and all of the things that belong to God. He turns him over to this man-like figure. And Jesus goes, I'm the guy. That's me. I'm the one. And immediately what happens? <laughs> okay, the garments are torn. The ears are covered. I can't believe he just said that. Why do we need any more witnesses? You know the high priest is going, yes, right? Exactly. That's all we need. We don't even need a trial now, right? Our work is done here. We have his statement, okay? So they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and they struck him with their fists and they said, prophesy. The guards took him and beat him. So Jesus begins to get beaten Already that evening by the high priest and the high priest's um, cronies and guards and people. Um, now, it says there's, an, there's all-inclusive language here, but we're pretty sure that all of, the, all of the Sanhedrin is not there, is not there that evening, right? 
because there's like 70 on the Sanhedrin. And that's a lot to fit in your living room, right? These are the leaders of the Sanhedrin. These are the people that are most associated with the high priest. There are surely people that are left out of this, correct? Like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, right? Nick at night. Those people are not there because they would have defended Jesus, right? And that's why this happens at night. Again, he had supporters even on the Sanhedrin. He had people uh, on the Sanhedrin who would have at least argued for um, following the law, right? And so all of this is manipulated. Meanwhile, out in the courtyard, uh, Peter is below. Did you notice the Markin sandwich? We start out with Peter entering the courtyard and then we go to Jesus trial. And now we return to Peter in the courtyard. So this is the Markin sandwich literary device. Okay, so we have, um, we have two stories. The story of Peter in the courtyard and Jesus in the courtroom. Okay? And both of them are on trial. All right? So let's take a moment and compare and contrast what happens to Peter and to Jesus. You mean like that Jesus confessed and Peter denied? So we've got the juxtaposition of okay. Jesus Good. finally saying what you know, I am, I am he. And Peter's going like, I don't know him. I've never met him. Exactly. So Peter, Peter is outside in the courtyard. Jesus is inside in the courtroom. Jesus is being, uh, who are Jesus' accusers? Who are they? The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. The most qualified accusers, right? The most educated, the most aggressive, the most powerful. Who is Peter's accuser? A servant girl. A servant girl. Do you get any more different? Okay. So um, those are on complete opposite sides of the spectrum as far as qualifications, right? Um, and, and Peter is telling a lie because he does know him. And Jesus is telling the truth because he is the son of God. Okay, very good. And what Peter's doing is fulfilling Jesus' prophecy because Jesus told him earlier he was going to do it. And he said, oh, no way. Good. Never going to do that. But he wasn't fulfilling it on purpose. Right. (laughs) But Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as well, and that's why he quotes Daniel. Right? Mm -hmm. What else do we have? What other points of comparison or contrast? all said and done, Peter runs away. When it's all said and done, Jesus said, I am he. That's right. And gets beaten. That's right. Jesus stands up to the accusations, and even though he's falsely accused, he takes the punishment. Peter slinks away, um, even though his, the accusations against him were entirely true, and yet he denied them. So Jesus... 
is on trial and he passes the test. Peter is on trial and he fails the test, right? Um, And we see this contrast between the two, don't we? Uh, The question is, who's really on trial? God. Right? Um, We tend to think of this as, this is Jesus' trial. It's not Jesus' trial. Jesus is not on trial. There's nothing to try Jesus about. They're trying to try him. The whole thing's a sham. Jesus is really in control, right? Because they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't even have been able to conclude the trial had Jesus not given it to them, okay? Peter's the one who's on trial. The religious leaders are on trial, right? The religious leaders are asking, and they ask the question, are you the one? He says, yes, I'm he. I am the son of the blessed one. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to believe or not? You have all the evidence. I've been here for three years. I have been preaching in the temple every day. You could have listened. You could have seen. You could have interviewed the people that have been healed. The people from whom demons have been cast. You have the evidence before you to prove that I am the one. But you refuse to look at the evidence. Who's really on trial? Who's really on trial? Okay, so we have very different, a very different thing going on here. And the disciples are such a disappointment. Yes. They're so, everybody's confused. Right. It's it's a a matter of the, the person they think Jesus is, is not, well, he's not the person they think he's supposed to be. Right. The religious leaders and the people. And if the religious leaders admit that Jesus is right, then their whole house of cards falls down, their whole tentative political agreement with the Romans goes, and the whole place is just... Right. They have to repent for their sin. I mean, nobody, they can't give, because if they do, then their power and their prestige is gone. Yep. Yeah, and, and quite possibly, you know, the, this Peter denies Jesus because she keeps calling him Shirley. It's just, Shirley, you're the one of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I don't know what's going on. Anyway, uh, by the time it's all over, three times he denies Jesus, right? Just as Jesus had prophesied, three times. You know, there's significance to the three, okay? Three times is absolute, holy, holy, holy. Right? Peter's denial, denial, denial. So three times is significant. His, his denial is absolute. There's no, no doubt that he denied. Uh, before the rooster crowed twice, uh, you will disown me three times. He remembers what Jesus says. He breaks down and weeps, um, beats himself up for it, um, and, and, and that's the end. Uh, we will, we don't have a choice. We have to stop there. Um, we, we needed to talk about, about Barabbas and we'll talk about that next time. It's okay if we're running a little late, we got six extra weeks. So even if we take a little bit longer, that's okay. 
let's take a minute to pray here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've shared together. Lord God, when we look at the trial of Jesus, we realize that this is really not about Jesus, it's about us. Uh, what will we do when we're asked, when we are brought before um, our neighbors, um, the people around us, and they say, uh, you're one of them, aren't you? What will we say? Will we disown Jesus? Will we stand with him? Um, Lord, may we be bold uh, to identify with you um, and trust in you for the consequences of that identification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a question.